Hey everybody, it is episode 108 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. I'm excited to be bringing a special guest today. Zach Bitter will be joining the show. He is a specialist at ultra distances, road, trail, track, and actually holds the U.S. 100-mile record. He set that at the Desert Solstice Race, which is a track race, so he ran 100 miles on a track, 400 laps. He completed that race in 11 hours and 40 minutes, which is 7.01 pace per mile for 100 miles. Quite, quite unbelievable. Also holds three national ultra titles as well and is a 231 marathoner on the roads. So Zach is an absolute ultra stud. So we're going to have him on. But this isn't necessarily a podcast about the ultra distances. We're going to be covering a range of topics that I think will be applicable for all endurance athletes from mental training to purpose to how Zach uses Maffetone-based heart rate training to, to set his base and foundation to peaking and tapering and how those two things might look a little bit different. We're also going to get some advice from me as a trail newbie on my 50-miler coming up. So we will get a little bit about trail. And then, of course, Zach is known for his use of a fat-adapted diet. So we'll cover that with him a little bit as well. So lots of topics to cover with Zach. I'm excited about the interview. I've also got Mallory Brooks joining me to help interview Zach. She's been on episode 97, most recently talking about her experimentation with the Maffetone method, but she's also been on episode 39 and 16 as well. So it'll be good to have Mallory on. Before we bring Zach and Mallory in, wanted to cover off on a couple of quick current events. It's been a little bit slow so far in the new year, but things will be ramping up quickly as indoor track starts really, really soon. I've got a couple of highlights, though, that aren't related to the track, but are related to marathon distance, which is that Kara Goucher will be racing the Houston Marathon this coming weekend. If you're listening to this, it'll be this coming weekend in Houston. She's coming back to the marathon after a nearly three-year hiatus. The last time she ran a marathon was in LA in 2016 to try to qualify for the Olympics, where she finished an agonizing fourth place to miss that Olympic spot by one. She's going to be in Houston racing. She said that this race is for her, not for anybody else. She's shooting for a 232, and so not necessarily anywhere near her fastest times, but will be good to see Kara back on the roads for the marathon so definitely follow and cheer for Kara this weekend there's other good races both in the half and the full in Houston so we'll be watching those closely the other thing I wanted to quickly touch on was the Atlanta Olympic trials course was announced this week and so we got a preview of what's to come in Atlanta for the Olympic trials in 2020 leading into Tokyo and the course is going to be tough it's a loop course, so you're going to have four loops on a six-point, four-mile loop, I think, and then one of the, the last version of that will tack on an additional couple of miles to round out the 26.2, and there's going to be plenty of spots for spectators to be able to see the race in multiple locations, or in, in, in multiple ways, but without moving locations, so really, really cool setup I think in Atlanta but the course is going to be tough 
if you look at some of the reports on early elevation changes, this course looks to have somewhere between 1,000 feet and 1,500 feet of elevation gain. It seems to be pretty much constantly rolling throughout, and I think will create a really, really interesting challenge for the racers there, and will make this one pretty much wide open for those three Olympic spots. And for those that live in Austin, if you want to make comparisons, our Austin course here is about 1,000 feet of gain as well. Very, very challenging course here in Austin. So it's going to be similar. And so for those rogues training for the Olympic trials, and we have several of them who have qualified, they've got the perfect venue to train. But it's going to be a tough course, lots of elevation gain, lots of rolling hills, which I think is going to really make for exciting racing. I'll be in Atlanta in February of 2020 to watch, and I would encourage everybody to plan their trip to get there. So with that as a quick intro, we've got a good good interview with Zach coming up, and so we will bring him and Mallory in for that. All right, welcome, Zach Bitter, to the show. How are you doing today, Zach? Hey, thanks uh, for having me on. I'm doing great. We're excited to have the one of the studs of ultra running on the show, <laughs> and an expert on a lot of things. So we've got a lot to cover. And as I said in the intro, this is going to be, I think, relevant, not just for those that are in trail or in ultra world, but really relevant for anybody who's doing endurance based distance events. We're going to cover off on a lot of topics that I think will also be applicable to road racers or marathoners, half marathoners, that sort of thing. So we'll cover a lot of things, but I want to start with you, Zach, where we started talking about some running current events and i just want to be a fan with you for a second as a fan of the sport what athletes whether they be ultra or track or road what athletes inspire you i don't know i think uh quite a few actually (laughs) um you know i'm just i'm bound to leave some out but uh you know i I like to kind of follow a pretty wide ranging group and then i'll like follow some for for a while just to see kind of like what they're doing maybe differently as well as similar to what I'm doing or what they're doing similar or different to what other people are doing. Um, so I think like probably this last year and maybe even the last couple of years, I've been pretty close and in touch with a guy named Pat Reagan. Uh, he's uh, an ultra marathon runner, uh, division two college cross country and track coach and has a pretty healthy background in just some of the more traditional endurance sports. So, uh, I think he's qualified for the Olympic trials via the half marathon. So he's no stranger to fast, short stuff either. And, uh, just watching his, he got into the sport a little later than me. So kind of watching just how smart he has been about, you know, training and racing over the few years he's been in the sport. has been, uh, kind of a cool thing to follow for me and someone I've certainly uh, drew in, uh, drew inspiration and uh, info from and then uh, uh, likewise on the other end too. So it's kind of a good mutual benefit, I guess. What do you, what have you learned from him? What's one thing you'd, you've pulled from his watching him train or race? Uh, yeah, just, I think just being like smart about, kind of how you plan stuff and just, just thinking through things more or less. Cause I think in the, in the sport of ultra running, um, I mean, we're kind of victims of our own victims of our own passion to some degree. 
Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense when you really think about it. It's like extreme endurance. It's like we get these folks who have, for whatever reason, decided that if 26.2 is good, 80K or 100 miles or six days or whatever must be better. Uh, and I think there's there's some truth to that maybe, but there's also uh, a little bit of like more is better mentality. Uh, so, you know, Pat's just taken a little more of a traditional approach to, to ultra marathon running. And that's traditional in the sense from what you would see like in a, in a more marathon or half marathon or 5k, 10k buildup where, you know, you, you kind of pick a couple a races and you kind of structure everything towards that. And you don't necessarily try to do everything all at once. So, you know, I think something, one of the things that I think is a strength of his is just his patience with that sort of thing. So uh, I think a lot of people could learn from that. Hell yeah. We definitely believe in peaking. I do think it's a little bit different though in the ultra world and hell, since we're there, we might as well ask about it (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, as I've heard you talk in other interviews, sometimes you got to do some ultra races to prepare for maybe a big Mm -hmm. ultra race down the road because you can't really recreate the same conditions that you can in training, you know, versus a race. Plus sometimes it just simply comes down to logistics and having a place where you can actually have support for a 50 K distance or a 50 mile distance. If you're planning to do a hundred down the road. So it, it does seem to lend itself more. The, the sport of ultra running or trail running seems to lend itself more to a little bit more insanity when it comes to putting races in, on the calendar. Yeah, no, that's definitely a fair point. And it's, it is kind of funny when you think about it, if you're training for a hundred mile race, even if you go out and do a 50 mile long run, which is, pretty uncommon if it's outside of an event for an ultra marathon like training plan uh in that you'd still only be kind of getting halfway to what you're going to experience on race day so yeah there's definitely some value in filling up your race schedule a little bit in terms of trying to pair up some events with long runs in your schedule and uh you know i try to practice the same thing i preach when i'm coaching and that's just really digging into kind of the psyche of the person who's going to be doing that. Cause from my experience, usually you, you end up with one of two types and one type is someone who has no problem signing up for say a 50 K and committing to not stretching past 80% kind of full capacity. So they're going to get a good hard long run in, but they're not going to you know, need two weeks to recover. And then there's the, the person who, if you put them on a starting line and fire off a, a pistol, they're going to be going 100% no matter what. So you got to get a little more creative, I think, in figuring out who you are in that, as well as who people you're helping are in that. Because for a coaching client who can't hold the reins back, I'm going to be more uh clear about let's put a couple of races on the schedule and then, you know, do everything else in training versus the person who can dial it back. You know, that person, I don't mind putting three, two, three build up races into like a hundred miler on the schedule, because if you can do that properly, it is a lot easier to have the logistics kind of taking care of you with aid stations, um, you know, get that, that, that stimulus in, with another group of people and then also just going through kind of the pre-race morning of race and post-race kind of logistical stuff so that when the a race does come up you kind of gone through those paces a couple times and it's not 
like six or eight months ago was the last time you did that whole routine. So I like the mention of the mental side of things. And I think you're right with coaching. That's critical. I want to come back to that before we do. Give me one female that you're a fan of. What's the one female athlete that you follow that maybe you've learned something from? Yeah. Um, well, if I want to be really biased, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick my wife. <laughs> my, my wife is a Nicole, Nicole, formerly Caladropolis. I'm happy to say bitter now. Um, but yeah, she's, she's inspiring to me because, and this is partly because I get to see her kind of full life, not just the racing and, you know, glimpses of Strava or anything like that. But, um, from, you know, it's, she's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. So I think that kind of is just a good kind of gauge for me to see, like, uh, this is what you can really do if you really want to, you know, kind of lead a professional life as well as train and race for ultra marathons. Um, you know, another person, uh, that I think is probably on a lot of people's list is Courtney DeWalter. Um, well, part of the reason that I really am interested in kind of what she's up to and doing is because she, she seems to have not changed at all from the first race she's done to, you know, the most successful one she's done. And I don't think that's always the case. Uh, someone who's as you know well-known as she is now uh, in the ultra running world, as well as some of the mainstream media stuff is likely to probably have a different mindset going into an event where it seems like she just kind of has that same uh, kind of carefree, like easygoing attitude. And um, I think that's a really cool like message to be sent to people kind of coming into the sport that, uh, you know, this is essentially adult recess at the end of the day. So we should be trying to have fun and not try to make it, you know, all about just, you know, getting your best race every time. Absolutely. I mean, she's been kind of on everybody's radar lately. Like you just said, everybody's kind of watching to see what she's doing next. And what she just did at Big's Backyard is pretty incredible. Yeah. I think it got that race a ton of attention. Um, <laughs> okay. What about uh, maybe an obvious one that you um, are at least watching, um, Camille Heron. What is that? Is she you a fan? What is your relationship with her? How do you guys, is there like friendly banter and cheering or is it a bit more of this kind of like friendly rivalry of sorts? Yeah, no, I mean, Camille has essentially redefined like what's possible, I think, uh, on the the women's side from everything from 50 kilometers now up to 24 hours, uh, you know, on the flat surface. I mean, we look at just her 50 K to 24 hour resume. I mean, she's a 50 K world champion. She's a hundred K world champion. She's a comrades champion. Uh, she's got the 12 hour world record, the hundred mile world record and the 24 hour world record. If it's a flat piece of terrain and it's 24 hours or, between 50 K and 24 hours, it's like, you know, she's the person to beat, I think, uh, uh, which is cool. Um, I think, uh, she should be <laughs> super stoked about that. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting because in ultra marathon running, we have such a diversity of different distances and different events or different terrains, I guess that it's, I think it's pretty rare to see, someone that has been able to really nail all the surfaces, all the distances 
And um, I think Camille, Camille's run some good trail races too, no doubt. Um, it'll be cool to see kind of as her career progresses, if she can translate some of those results onto like you know, some of the real mountain courses, uh, which is um, something that Courtney's kind of, I think, figured out more or less. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, you know, Camille could retire today and she would be a legend in the sport um, just by that resume I read out before. So I, I don't think she has any intention of doing that. She's definitely uh, um, a dream big and then go after it type of person from my experience with her, which is cool. I think it's, I think it's always good when, you know, you can see someone kind of come in and, and uh, like, I guess, over deliver based on maybe what everyone else expected. And I think Camille probably fits in that mold. I think um, it'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone other than maybe Camille that would have envisioned her being where she is today, two or three years ago. And, you know, that's major props to her and just sticking to the process. And it'll be fun to see what she kind of continues to do too. Absolutely. I mean, what is that like though? So say she, you know, I've had records broken and I, my first instinct is not to call up somebody and say, congratulations. There's a little bit of that, like, Oh, what can I do to come back and get at it? Is there, <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you guys, do you, if she breaks it, do you say, all right, awesome. Well done. Or are you like, all right, back to the drawing board. I got to figure out how to get this back or a little. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess like from a competition standpoint, like, uh, I haven't really been competing with Camille too much. Like it's, uh, I mean, she's got a, she's got a better 24 hour than me. Uh, she's got a better 24 hour than a lot of people, but, um, like it's, I, I, I never really see Camille as a competitor, I guess. It's like, I think, and I'm not saying that just for her. I'm saying that just in general, because like, I right. think ultra marathoning where it, where it tends to differ, especially when you get up into the hundred mile distance and beyond, is if you really want to kind of get the best out of yourself, I think you need to be, uh, have it be like you against the course or you against the day. Um, and you know, Jeff Browning is someone that is really good about speaking to this. And I think really good about actually uh, implementing it as well is like when you get to the starting line, if you get caught up into what everyone else is doing or what everyone else is trying to do, it, like you're going to find yourself in a position that is not ideal for your own psyche and potentially your own kind of physical potential for that day. So you kind of have to look at it as like, I'm going up against this course or this event or this time, and I'm going to execute based on my training as to what I think I can do and respond to things that come up that are uncertainties. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's where you're going to draw like what you need to do to improve or what you need to do to continue doing well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're in a 12 hour, 24 hour event, like desert solstice, and Camille happens to be out there. It's not like you guys are racing each other. Right. <laughs> you're, you're really racing your potential essentially right on that day. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm certainly no, uh, <laughs> expert with the 24 hour stuff. Uh, you know, it's an event I'm really interested in and one I want to figure out and I've got some figuring out to do in that one. But one thing I, I'm pretty certain about is like early on in that you really, you really shouldn't be racing because like, uh, I mean, if you even look at like 
Camille splits at desert solstice this year. She, she split like 90, I think it was like 91 ish miles in the first 12 hours, 90 to 91. And then she ultimately ran 163. So then she, her second 12 hours was 73 miles. So, I mean, 73 versus 91 is a big enough gap where it's like at 12 hours, you just don't know how far someone's going to get. It's like, you look at that, that number and it's, I think it's easy to get caught up in that and be like, Oh, um, she's on pace for 180. And it's like, yeah, but there's 12 hours left and it's through the night. <laughs> and I mean, it's a strategy. Uh, I think it's what's interesting about the 24 hours. Cause then on the other hand, you have someone like Nick Curry, who I think he ran, if I'm remembering right, like 156 miles at desert solstice, but he split, um, it was like a one, he ran one mile further in the second 12 hours. So he basically just even split the entire thing. Um, so it's really hard to, I think, compete with someone in a 24 hour in the early stages, because you just don't know, like, is this person trying to even split it? Is this person trying to negative split it, positive split it? Like what's their race plan? You know, so, it, and in, if they have a race plan and it's that specific, are they actually going to be able to execute it? So to be thinking about like, oh no, someone's catching up to me at hour 11, hour 12, hour 13, you know, that's, I think you're getting out ahead of yourself. And with some of these longer events, a lot of times you, I think you find yourself from the mental side of things really needing to compartmentalize a little bit, because if you try to continuously wrap your head around the entirety of the event, you're going to kind of psych yourself out or overwhelm yourself. And, uh, you know, then you're going to run into problems because eventually you're going to run out of that kind of mental energy to keep going. So that's it. Let's stop there for a second. Cause obviously in any endurance event, you are chunking things up a little bit. You know, a lot of people in a marathon are going to say, all right, here's my mile by mile plan, or maybe 5k by 5k, depending on how they want to chunk it up to execute a plan in a 24 hour race. What, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, you guys might have to get someone who's finished a 24 hour race to come on the show and talk to you about <laughs> I mean, that. Like, well, um, in theory, what does it look like for you? You think, I mean, what, what have you, what have you done right and done wrong there? Um, yeah. So, well, here's what, how, what, how I'll say it is like, I think you need to, I, I think you need to treat it differently than a hundred miler unless, you know, unless your hunt, your 24 hour pace is very close to like your hundred mile pace, in which case you can kind of look at it as similar events. Um, but you know, for me personally, like I've run a hundred miles in 11 hours and 40 minutes. So it's a different event at that point um, where you're going to compartmentalize it a little differently. So like, I think you need to be, when you get in the distance that long, you going out too fast is definitely a concern. So you can't lose sight of the entirety of the event. But at the same time, like I was saying before, if you continuously think about, say, hour 12 for a 100 mile or hour 24 for a 24 hour race, you, you're going to find yourself just like just beating yourself up because you'll be like, you know, eight hours in and then you'll look at how much is left and it's still way too much to really be wrapping your head around. So from a pacing side of things, you need to be honest with yourself about like kind of what you're doing to get to that end product. So you kind of have that end product in the back of your mind, um, but then have those immediate smaller goals. And I mean, sometimes they range. Like I think earlier in the event, you can stretch them out a little bit because you're pretty fresh still, you're tapered. So 
like the first like you know three or four hours just kind of fly by and um you know then it kind of starts to slowly take like every minute feels a little longer than it did in the, the previous minute going forward from that so then you have to just be willing to kind of even narrow that a little bit and you know some things i'll do too is like try to almost remove yourself from the situation altogether and think of like especially if you're kind of in a spot where you're you're struggling a bit is say like okay i'm just going to pretend i'm on this like little five mile recovery loop that i'll do at home and i'm just going to focus only on finishing that and just kind of vision or visualize yourself being on that specific loop and um picture where you would be each time until you get to that. And then once you get to that, pick a new goal and just kind of continually add these things. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily something you can pre-build before an event. Cause you just don't know when you're going to have some of those peaks or valleys or, you know, feel good, great or otherwise. Um, so you kind of have to be, I think, arm yourself with the idea that you're going to need to send like compartmentalize the race, but not necessarily hold yourself to any one specific plan. Uh, I think on the trails, maybe it's a little easier because you, especially nowadays where most events have aid stations on what historically would maybe be considered an absurd number where you're like every four or five miles, you're coming through an aid station and then you can kind of just take it one aid station at a time. So that's, that's probably a little bit of a, an easier environment to maybe plot that out ahead of time. Okay. Now, so we just, we're talking about these 24 hour races, 12 hour races, hundred mile races for a lot of people. And I've never done more than 26.2 myself for a lot of people. They think that's, that's fucking crazy. So <laughs> talk about why you do these events. Like what's your purpose? Like what mm-hmm. drives you to do events like this? Yeah, I guess uh, the first kind of inkling uh, was probably in college. You know, I ran track and cross country in high school and college. And uh, in college, it was probably where I was really began to be exposed to kind of some of just like the methodology behind training, like a real periodized approach and like what exactly we were trying to achieve with certain workouts. Um, and after kind of wrapping my head around all of that stuff and just kind of getting the full experience of like, you know, a couple seasons of building up and recovering and building up again, it became pretty obvious to me near the end that my favorite workout was the long run. So, um, after I got done with college, like I knew I wanted to keep running. I wasn't hundred percent sure what that would look like. So as I kind of worked through that in my mind, I would just do more or less long runs all the time. And, uh, I think that's a good gateway to finding yourself doing ultra marathons. Uh, you know, then I, you know, I can't remember where my first piece of information was that kind of told me, you know, it might've been, uh, when I I think I saw like a news story about Dean Carnassus running like 300 consecutive miles or something like that, or, I think he did like 268 before that. And uh, that was like, oh, wow, there's people who are just like literally running as far as they can. And uh, in 2010, uh, I was actually just online, I think, looking around to see what type of race I would I could kind of put in the calendar and build up for. And uh, I had no clue that Wisconsin actually had ultra marathon events in the state, which is where I was living at the time. And I came across 
an event there, a 50 miler kind of in the Kettle Moraine area and thought it was like at a good time of year. And thought, well, maybe I'll try this 50 mile just to see what it's like. And my, my intentions after that was that I would maybe do it, see what it's like, and then not do one for a while um, and go back to some more traditional distances. But uh, like, I think happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So that, that helps. (laughs) That definitely helps when your first exposure is a win. So, um, you know, and winning was something like in the sport of endurance that I guess I wasn't like super accustomed to, like, I mean, I would win like some like local 5Ks and 10K type stuff. And, um, you know, but in like college and high school, like, you know, I'd make the state meet, I'd make the conference meet in college. Uh, but I was not usually like, I mean, I wasn't winning state. I wasn't winning conference. I wasn't going to nationals, that sort of thing. So, you know, like there was always guys ahead of me. Um, and so I think like sometimes that does have a draw. So my having my first experience be, be a win was, I think, motivating to kind of explore it a little more. Um, but I did wait a year before I did another one. I actually didn't do another one until that same event the following year. But at that point I was kind of locked in and I ended up doing, I think three fifty milers that fall. And after that, I've just basically peaked for ultra marathons since then. It's one thing to, to say you enjoy long runs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's another thing to go to do hundred mile races and, and these these crazy endurance events so yeah well and it's it's a slippery slope no doubt like i mean i remember (laughs) when i didn't run track or cross country my freshman year of college but my uh sophomore year i decided well if the school had a program i may as well if i'm going to be here i may as well be you know running with the team if i can so i just met with the coach to find out what i had to do to try to make the team and he just kind of spelled out exactly what the process was in terms of kind of what the freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors were doing. And when he got to describing kind of the workouts and the stuff that the juniors and seniors were doing, I think he said something to the tune of like some of our juniors and seniors will, you know, build up to 90 to hundred miles a week in the summer. Uh, and at that point, I don't think I had run more than 40 miles in a week. So my first thought was like, I will never run a 90 mile week in my life. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. you know, a few years later, you find yourself running more than that in a day. Uh, So it is one of those things, I think, where you can kind of go down this like this path where you uh, you do like a 50K or a 50 miler. And then you start to kind of look at what other people are doing. And you're like, oh, there's a 100K. Well, maybe I'll try that because you get kind of maybe a little addicted to this idea of like exploring the unknown. So you can explore the unknown, I guess, by saying, I want a PR at this distance. But for some reason, I think, especially within the ultra running community, it tends to be sometimes a little less about that and a little more about, oh, there's hundred milers too. Maybe I'll try that. And, oh, look at this. Here's a a, a 200 miler now. And you see that happening, like this growth of the 200 mile distance now. Um, and just as soon as we've gotten comfortable with that being a reality, there's talk of someone setting up a 500 miler. So, um, which I guess shouldn't be too big of a surprise. I mean, six day events have been around since the 1800s, I guess, but, um, the sport has kind of ebbed and flowed a bit since then. So it's, uh, it, it is something that I think is hard for someone who hasn't done it to really understand it. And I certainly didn't. And that's why my first response to my coach was that I would never run a 90 mile week in my life. 
uh, is where like you kind of have to taste it. And then once you taste it, you go for a little more. And then, you know, before you know it, you're running hundred mile races and stuff like that. What is your favorite distance? And is it the same, is your favorite distance the same distance that you think you're, you excel at? Yeah. Uh, I would say my favorite distance is, uh, I think the hundred mile is, although I don't know that it's, it's, it's definitely the one I think that at this point in time, I figured out the best, especially kind of on flat terrain. Um, and it's probably the one that I, that I would prefer to peak for. Um, but with that said, like, there's, there's, there's kind of pros and cons to all of it, I guess, at the end of the day, like a hundred K is pretty sweet on the roads just because like, you know, if you start early enough in the morning, you can kind of be done maybe just after lunchtime. So like you, you have like a half a day. You can after. be done by lunchtime. I'll be there for breakfast. There's hundred Ks out in Europe that I would take me longer to do than a flat hundred miler. So <laughs> there, there's some okay. daunting ones out there, no doubt. But, um, yeah, you know, I think I think I I I like the hundred mile distance though. If I had to pick, uh, if I had to project into the future, I actually think um, the twenty four hour is going to be something that that I, I can really get behind. And uh, part of that's just kind of solving the puzzle and getting one under my belt, a full one under my belt. And uh, I'm excited for that because I also I mean kind of like the whole nuance of oh here's something I've never done before. Um, I think you get you get that and then there's there's like okay no how do i improve that and you can start trying to figure more out about it and the more of them you do the more you kind of learn about what does and doesn't work for you personally and you can try some different strategies and and i really like that side of ultra running um it's something i'll tell a lot of the a lot of my clients too if they're trying to pick a race or they're deciding if they want to do one race over the other and uh i like to share that you should really be deciding what training plan you want to do because regardless of how long the race is you're going to be spending way more time preparing for that so you might as well enjoy that process so if you don't really want to be doing you know long intervals on a a flat road you probably shouldn't sign up for a flat 100 miler just like if you don't want to be you know climbing big mountain peaks then you probably shouldn't sign up for like you know leadville or something like that so uh, you know, there's, I, I think there's, there's that side too, is just, uh, picking the process that you enjoy to do. I think one thing that's interesting is that you haven't once said something to the effect of, oh, I'm doing it to test myself. You know, I think a lot of times that's the perception of people like me who haven't done ultras yet that, oh, it's, it's all about finding your limits and seeing if you can push beyond those limits. And I think that can be part of it, but it doesn't have to be part of it for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like for you, it's a, it's something a little bit different. It's like, yeah, you're certainly testing your limits. That's a part of it. That's what the ultra world, you know, is about at some level. But at the same time for you, maybe it is the problem solving aspect. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I think it's part of it is just like, you know, the more of them I do, the more I realize, like, especially when you get up to a hundred miles and further, uh, I don't think it's necessarily possible to perfectly execute a race. Um, I think, uh, 
like I think you could take any race by any person and or if you could take any person and have them identify the best race they've had, they could probably tell you two or three things that if they could have done that differently, they would have been even that much faster or it would have been that much better. So I think if you're targeting like personal perfection, then uh, you're going to have an endless battle. <laughs> but uh, if you recognize that for what it is, which is it takes a long time to run 100 miles, something unexpected is going to happen. It's a guarantee. So it's more about how I respond to that in rally than it is about trying to avoid that altogether. Um, there's certainly things you can do to kind of try to minimize that sort of stuff uh, and things you should do. Um, but ultimately, uncertainties are going to pop up and it's going to come down to how you deal with those. It's true in marathoning, too, by the way. There's no such thing as a perfect <laughs> marathon. And I think part of our challenge in the sport of road marathoning is that it's it has become too much about the PR so that people lose perspective on, okay, I could have a better race today, but run slower than six months from now because of my, the way I was able to deal with whatever conditions mm -hmm. might have presented themselves on that day. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's an interesting thought too, because I think like it's, it's a variance that I found myself getting caught up in with the, like the track and flat ultras versus the mountain ones. And I think some of it is bleeding over from some of the, the marathon side of things is that like you, you can control enough of the environments, I suppose with marathons. Um, I mean, weather's probably a big variable, but the course really isn't changing much from year to year. I mean, you could go to different types of courses, but usually if you take a, a look at the website, you can kind of figure out if you picked a hard course, an easy course or somewhere in between. And it's like, at that point, it, uh, I think a lot more gets, gets tied up into like the, the, the time you're going to run. Um, whereas when you get into like some of these like mountain trail races, like you might have a 30 degree difference or like, I think weather extremes tend to be like something that is like almost, uh, a part of the sport of ultra running where it's not always considered a bad thing. I mean, like think of Western States, it's like, uh, part of the reality there is more often than not, you're going to have a hundred degree plus temperatures in the canyons. Um, you know, but then maybe you have a, a cold year or something and it's only 80 in the canyons and, you know, that's going to be a lot different. So I think, and then with like, so then we get to like the track ultras and stuff, it's, it gets a little closer to what I was describing in the marathon side where you can really kind of almost eliminate a lot of those variables that are uncertain and try to put up this perfect scenario. And that's where I think you can run into trouble too, is like going in, trying to like control too much and then getting too hung up on something when it doesn't go right because you think, Oh, everything should be perfect. I planned this out <laughs> and then it's not that way. So another part of the mindset thing I wanted to talk about is your like a winning mindset. You know, you were an accomplished high school runner, an accomplished college runner, but you weren't necessarily, as you said, winning big races. But in ultras, you've done that. So was was there a shift for you to to get to 
a winning mindset or to get used to winning, so to speak, or was it, or did it just come naturally? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, you know, it, it, it was, some of it is just, uh, kind of what I said before is, I don't know how, I, if I did this intentionally or not, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, what it likely it's, I think it's kind of like the culture around ultra marathon running, uh, it's changed a bit since I started, um, or at least some, some corners of it have, I guess you could say. Uh, but the culture in ultra marathon running has, I, has a pretty steep history in, in, uh, being more of a community and less of a competition. So it's, it's got a lot more likelihood to have like, um, you know, you, you get beat by someone, but you're happy for them versus like, you really want to go out there and, you know, take it to them the next time. And, it, and, you know, you get, you definitely get competition and competitive stuff, but, uh, I think there's a pretty deep appreciation that like, um, with ultra marathons, a lot of times it's going to be less about who is the most talented runner and more about who just happens to have a really good day. Um, cause with a lot of these races nowadays, enough talent is showing up where like, um, the small percentage differences in just their raw ability could easily get trumped by a mistake at an aid station or, you know, going out a little too fast or just not, not timing their nutrition quite right. So, um, I think there's a little more of this, like, kind of like, well, I'm going to keep taking a swing at these. And then if this one doesn't go well, maybe the next one will, and just kind of continuing that process. And, uh, I think that's kind of the mentality I've always taken too, was like, you know, if a, if a race goes badly, um, and I, and I don't do well, uh, there's another one down the road, as long as I, you know, stay positive and kind of keep the passion to stay doing it. And then when you do that enough times, you find yourself, you know, setting a record or winning or something like that, uh, you know, given the right context. I mean, I feel like it's one of the few sports where first and second place are known for finishing holding hands, right? Yeah. Not like out sprinting <laughs> each other at the end. Yeah. Which I guess I, I don't see in any other sports. Perhaps I just stay focused on this, but I remember watching uh, hard rock. What was it? Two or three years ago. Like, you want to watch them out sprint each other at the end mm-hmm. and they decided to just hold hands and finish. And it was this whole, we worked through this thing together. It's been this massive journey and just really cool to see like what you're saying, which is this kind of massive respect. I think everybody has for their competitors out there. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a lot of it is, I really, I think a lot of those athletes like you really enjoy the race and the journey. And it, maybe it's not as much about winning and having a good race may not be reflected in how you finish. You could have a fantastic race and still come in off the podium and you could come in and finish on the podium and not have a great race. So it's a little more about like the story and less about kind of what number follows you or what, you know, what medal hanging around your neck follows that race. Um, So I want to ask about training generally. Um, If, so say you've decided for your A race and you tend to run, I mean, how, Okay, 2006, I think you ran, what, at least 10 races. How many of those races are your A race? And how many of them are used for training? Do you categorize a race as, okay, this is a training run that I'm just, you know, it's hard to go out there and encourage yourself to go run 60 miles. So you're going to sign up for a race to do it. Or do you categorize them as, I'm just here for fun? Or 
do you have categories for how you consider training for a race or what races, how you treat these races? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I guess I never necessarily go into a year saying I'm going to run a certain number of races, but what I will do is usually I'll pick one race at the kind of the spring, early summer timeline, and then one in the kind of fall, early winter timeline that I really want to target and uh, build everything around those. So like for Western States this year, I did, that was kind of my, the big one I was targeting, but I did three races leading into it. And I would say those races were kind of what I would call, if like Western was an A race, then those ones were kind of like B or C races where um, my number one goal was to get a good solid long run in. And, uh, you know, if I felt, if I felt good, I'd push a little harder, but you know, I wasn't going to try to force anything beyond that. Um, right. and those will usually be like, you know, like 50 K to maybe a hundred K in distance. So usually when I have a, for, when I do like two or three of those, I'm probably not going to try to squeeze a couple a races in. Um, whereas like this fall, I did a little differently. I didn't do really any buildup races to tunnel Hill. Um, but I did pick kind of two a races. Well, at least that's the way I had envisioned it going in, um, was that I would do tunnel Hill and then desert solstice 24 hour and kind of try to just spend a lot more energy peaking for those those two and maybe take a little less out of me by doing some of the harder long runs that would be kind of like a B level race. So that's usually how I do it. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll build in two A races and know in the back of my mind, only one of them's really going to be an A race, but I want to kind of give myself a chance to really put it out there if I have a good day. So, you know, sometimes what'll happen is you'll have an A race and for whatever reason, things just don't go well that day. So although you didn't feel great that day, you maybe didn't beat yourself up to the degree that um, you had anticipated when you made that your A race. So you have a little left in the tank to target something else. Um, so sometimes I'll do that too, just as kind of like, I guess, a safety belt more or less. I, I think you have to be a little careful with that too, because you don't necessarily want to give yourself a chance to make an excuse if you have like, say, two A races and then the first one isn't going quite as well as you'd like, but you could still have the potential to have a really solid day and then, you know, back out or slow down because you're like, I'm just going to save my energies for the second one. You don't necessarily want to build in an excuse either, but, um, that's kind of how I'll usually do it or kind of teach people to do it. So a couple of peaks a year and how are you then building a plan to get to one of those peaks? Mm -hmm. what's your, yeah. what are your periods looking like yeah so if i am building up to like an a race usually what i'll do is uh in a perfect world i'll usually have about like a kind of a 16 week uh training cycle more or less but sometimes that'll depend a bit on like where my fitness is at so if i take like some downtime and you know i, I never try to get like so like defitted I that I it's like you know I have to restart the process from scratch um and I think that's kind of the move for for most athletes is allow yourself to 
scale back from peak fitness, but don't let yourself go to kind of couch potato mode where you're just shutting it down altogether for like four or five, maybe six weeks. And then you're, you're essentially starting from the very beginning. So, but ideally what I like to do is I like to spend a few weeks kind of really dialing in, uh, my, my kind of like just strong aerobic base is the way I would describe it. And the way I kind of do that is I'll, I'll usually pay a lot more close attention to heart rate in this phase of training. And I'll just look at like what my pace is at a, at a given heart rate. So for me, that's like around 150 beats per minute. And if I go out and that first run, it's like I'm 640 pace or something like that on a flat stretch of, you know, this flat track or flat road that in the weather is reasonably um, not like extreme, uh, then I can start to try to chip away at that. And I've just known from going through that system so many times that kind of once I get down to like around a six flat at that heart rate, I've got a pretty strong aerobic base built. And then that's kind of the foundation that I'm going to put whatever I end up training for on top of. And that's where it'll start to differ a little bit. So I think it's really important to focus on like specificity uh, as well as the distance when you're kind of structuring what type of workouts you're going to do to prepare for it. Um, so when I'm looking at kind of what workouts to do, I'm looking at more where I'm going to place them as opposed to like how different they're going to be from one race to the next. So if it's like a mountain trail race, I'm going to try to spend as much time, especially with the key work uh, on train that's similar to that. Uh, it gets more difficult when you start getting into some of these like, like really like different type areas. Cause it's like, you know, you sign up for a race where it's essentially beach sand. It's like most, a lot of people aren't going to be able to find that type of train to train on. Uh, so you have to try to be a little open-minded sometimes about that or, or pick a race that, you know, you can really specify to the train and the other parts of the distance. Um, I think the rule of thumb I follow and that I guide my clients with is that uh, when, when you're training for a race, you want the workouts that are most specific to your race pace and race intensity as close to the race as possible. And then that doesn't mean that the other workouts are unnecessary or that you have to double triple down on just the race specific workouts. But, um, the ones that aren't race specific, but still address a core system of, uh, endurance sport is just better placed further away from the event itself. So it looks a little goofy for like a hundred miler. Um, you mean, if you think of like a traditional marathon buildup, some of those workouts you're doing leading into the marathon are going to be some of the workouts that I would maybe do at the beginning of a training plan leading into a hundred miler. Cause I still think it's worth training that system, hitting some of those like more traditional VO two max type workouts. And then as I get further along and a little closer to the race itself, like maybe eight weeks out or so I start focusing heavily on race specific type stuff. So then I'm doing, you know, any type of speed work is going to be long interval or long tempo. Uh, and then I'm going to really focus in on kind of the long run as well. Cause that's ultimately the most specific to race pace. Hundred mile pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Race yeah. pace that, is a kind of nebulous that's term. Really, that's not really <laughs> in my vernacular, but you got to do some work at hundred mile pace. <laughs> yeah well and that's Zach, you oh go ahead you said that you train with your heart rate at 150 is that for a specific reason or is that is that connected with the heart rate that you have as your goal heart rate for a race uh 
Yeah, kind of. Um, I have, I don't always track heart rate for races just because I think heart rate kind of depreciates in value the longer and longer you get out there because you have like fluctuations in hydration, potential like weather variances that are going to affect heart rate. So I, what I usually try to do is I try to tie my perceived effort gauge um, to a kind of a heart rate and then uh, ultimately lean on that during the race itself. But, um, you know, from the races I have done that have been like, you know, 100K to 100 mile, like 150 is pretty pretty consistent in terms of what my average heart rate has been. So uh, the, it, it gets a little tricky though, cause like, you know, running heart rate at eight hours versus one hour fresh is gonna be a little different. Um, when I do like the 150, uh, the 150 stuff in training, I'm basically operating on like a maximum aerobic function idea there. So I'm really just trying to develop that system. And I just know from, from previous training blocks kind of where that system tends to plateau before like I've kind of got that foundation set and I can start focusing on some other, some other systems to train for. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to get to pick your brain at Havelina hundred this year. Well, 2018. And I mean, I felt like I needed to walk around with a notepad and just keep asking questions <laughs> and writing things down. And hopefully it didn't drive you crazy, but I was in the middle of Maffetone training and I had all these questions for how to go about incorporating it into my race schedule. And when do I break away from it? What do I do if I feel like mm -hmm. this? And, and one of the things that you mentioned was how you're kind of questioning the standard idea of tapering and implementing this philosophy of peaking, right? So I think a lot of people would find that as an interesting new movement because what we all know is this, you know, taper madness lead up to a race and to have somebody question that and still be performing at a high level and with great success, it, it draws attention to this new philosophy, right? So can you kind of walk through at least what you taught me at Havelina 100? Sure. Yeah. If I'm remembering right, it was it when we were talking about kind of over tapering versus yes. under. Okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think sometimes I think what happens, I think this happens a lot in ultra running and I, I don't know if it happens a lot in marathon running. My guess would be yes, but like, uh, I see some scenarios occurring a lot and one of them is, uh, someone goes like really almost too hard in training to the degree where they're like peaking or trying to hold a peak for too long. So then they get to this, they get to this point where they almost have to taper, um, in order to feel good at all. And they find themselves really kind of shutting it down more or less for like two, three weeks. And then they get to the starting line kind of flat. Um, I think like a taper, well, I mean, a, a taper is really going to be relative to what you're doing too. And it's like where you're at. So like, a taper for someone who's been doing endurance sports for 10 plus years, does high volume, does the full like periodization of training, you know, their taper might almost look like a peak training week for someone who's just getting started. So it is all relative, but, um, I do think like there's this balance during a taper where you're trying to recover enough to feel fresh and ready to go on race day, but not, get so stale that like you're starting to kind of almost defit. 
so a lot of times I think I see people either they, they it's almost kind of two different mentalities, but they get the same thing is someone just gets too crazy during the training and they just, they need almost like an off season to get ready for the race or someone who procrastinates quite a long time. And then they find themselves, Oh, I got four weeks to get ready for this race. And they just go like all in for four weeks. And then they need the taper too, because they didn't micro stress. They kind of macro stressed. Um, and my philosophy as a coach and an athlete is you want to give yourself enough time to micro stress continuously through the process so that you get really, really strong, but not at the point where like at any one time you feel like you're just, you know, worthless <laughs> or like just, you know, completely couched from, from doing so much work for a week or a day or something like that. Um, so when I get to a taper, like I can never, like even in my biggest buildups, and you know, my biggest buildup was like desert solstice in 2015. And I, I peaked at like 170 miles. So it was a big buildup. It's the biggest buildup I've ever done essentially. And, uh, it, it wasn't, I didn't need a three week taper, a traditional three week taper because like, I didn't just decide to do 170 miles one week, like off the couch. I really built up to it. I spent like almost half a year essentially building up to that. And, uh, so then when I got to that, I was like, I needed to back off. Obviously I didn't want to run 170 miles the week leading into the race itself, but I didn't need to go down to like, you know, like not running at all the week before. Uh, so I think you want to reduce intensity and you want to reduce volume a couple of weeks out, but you don't necessarily want to just like stop doing workouts or stop doing runs. Uh, you know, so for me, it's like, I might even do, a couple workouts in the, during the taper, they're just going to be shorter in duration. Uh, I'm going to probably give myself more time in between them. Uh, and I'm going to kind of keep that sharpness there, but I'm not gonna, I'm also going to give myself kind of just enough time to recover from all the work you did leading into it as well. Yeah. So can we go back for a second? I want to talk about your math period at 150. How long does that typically take you to kind of get to that point where you feel like you've maximized your potential there? And are you doing faster work during that time as well, or just primarily all 150 heart rate runs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I'll do. Um, I'll do. I'll, I I usually stay away from going much over that, at least within reason. Like I might have a couple of days you know, just where I feel really good. Or if I decide to like you know, jump in a local 5k or something like that, uh, just for the fun of it. Um, I won't necessarily, it's not like super rigidly strict, but, uh, during that phase, I'm just, I'm, I'm essentially trying to build volume and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to that point where like when I have fresh legs and the weather is good and the terrain is flat that I can do right around six flat at 150. Um, and then at that point it's, it can, depending on the event I'm doing, I'm going to also try to build volume within that. So, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily go out and do every single run right at that, right at 150. There's days where, I'll do just like a recovery run altogether and I won't pay attention to heart rate. 
Um, and then it might just be like 130 beats per minute. Uh, but ultimately what I'm also looking for is the amount of miles per week I can uh, sustain that because I think, you know, maximum aerobic function, I think is a bit of an enigma to a lot of people because uh, you can get polar opposite responses depending on where the person's at and kind of what their running history is. Some people, they'll start doing maximum aerobic function training and they'll find themselves having to slow down to stay within that heart rate range. Um, and other people, they find that they have to actually speed up where I've coached folks in the past where I send them out for a maximum road function run and they get back, like it felt like a tempo run. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, and other people they'll be like, oh, I was, I had to walk part of the time. So, you know, some of those extremes, you, you kind of have to do a little more digging than just like the traditional kind of 180 minus your age type of formula, um, which is kind of a catch all. And from my experience, it does an okay job of catching a lot of people, but um, you can, you can do stuff that would kind of give you what your true 180 number would be um, and, and adjust based on kind of experience and uh, how the person is like, if they're like, say someone's 50 years old, but they're have a lot of experience in the sport and are, are running like way faster than the average 50 year old, you can probably be a little more liberal. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's what I'm, what I'm kind of trying to do with that is I'm trying to kind of really just build that, that aerobic base and kind of have that in place so I can build stuff off of it. And part of that, uh, will depend on kind of how, many miles per week i'm going to try to hit at that specific uh intensity uh before i move away from it uh so the reason why i do that is because like if i'm training for a hundred miler um that that gets close to kind of race specific workout too so i'm probably going to revisit it later uh in the program too as i get closer to the race uh and then it uh at that point, then I'm going to be real, my metric I'm gauging basically is building volume within that system, uh, as opposed to just trying to get myself down to be able to run as fast as I have historically at that system. Uh, if it's like a, a race that's maybe a little shorter, um, and I'm going to go above kind of that 150 heart rate during it, uh, then I might not revisit it. Cause like I said before, I'm going to be doing workouts that are closer to race specific intensity. And how long are you spending there early in the cycle? Um, roughly? like how many weeks or? Yeah. Uh, it depends right. a bit. Cause you know, sometimes I'll come off of a training block, uh, or come off a race and I'll take a little bit of downtime and I'll be mentally and physically ready to start another program and I'll start out and I'm already really close. Like some, I've done it before where like the first time I tried, I'm already down to like, you know, six fifteen, six twenty per mile. And I've had other times where I'm just like, like, uh, was it 2017? I got injured for seven weeks and, you know, my first, my first run, uh, was like, I think it was like just under eight minute pace for that. So that took me a lot longer to build back for it. Um, so like at that example where I come in and I'm already kind of like, I, for whatever reason, retained a decent amount of that fitness, uh, you know, that might only take me a few weeks. Whereas when I'm coming in after that injury, uh, you know, I think I'm trying to remember how long it took me to get down to like low sixes. Um, it, 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 there's a little bit of, I don't want people to think this is a 
super precise thing because like you have to work within context too. Like if I'm building up through the middle of the summer and it's 90 to hundred degrees outside, you got to kind of like accommodate for weather variances and stuff too. But, uh, that the, after I got injured, essentially took me probably two, almost three months to really get it back down to where I felt like it was right at kind of where I was plateauing and was time to start to move on to a different system. So a lot of times it just depends on where I come in at. What is that? Like, what is six minutes for you roughly in terms of race pace? Like what distance are you, if it was a flat road race, Mm -hmm. what distance are you covering in six flat? Yeah, probably about 50 miles, somewhere in there. I've done a 50 miler in five hours and 12 minutes, which is a just under 615 pace. Um, but that was also 13 days after a 50 miler that I had done just before that. So like, I, I guess I haven't really ever done a flat 50 miler where I really peaked for it. Um, or intended to peak for it, I guess you could say. So it's a little bit of speculation or a lot of speculation maybe on my part to think like that I could get down to about a five flat or so for 50 miles. If I gave it a good go on a flat surface, really good weather condition, you know, that would be right around six minute pace. There you go. 50 mile pace. It's, an, it's something new in my <laughs> vernacular. I need to tell people to, to train for their 50 mile pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, so, it's, it's an interesting, like, um, like the maximum road function. Cause I get a lot of questions about that. Cause some people you'll get people who are kind of diehards with it and they want to know why I ever deviate from it. And then there's folks that like, don't really know about it, I guess. And you know, what I usually try to share, I guess with the, if you have listeners who are really familiar with maximum aerobic function, um, one of the things I usually I usually share as to why I don't just do that just year in year out is because I think what it ends up doing is it gets you like super fit within that system. Like you can be pretty bulletproof within that system, but if you deviate outside of it, then like you kind of set yourself up to like expose yourself to something that's not, you're not used to. So the example would be that I think, I think the most relevant example would be if you're doing a trail race. Uh, I mean, it's going to be kind of tough just to sit within a certain heart rate range. Um, I mean, people do it, but I think like you need to leave yourself some flexibility to do some surges and then maybe scale back a little bit and work with a wider range of heart rate. Um, and if that's going to be the reality then you kind of need to have exposure to those different heart rates. So it's not a complete shock to your system when you do do it. Um, so that's kind of why I, I start with that as kind of a foundation, but don't necessarily do what someone would maybe look at as a pure year round maximum function program. But for our listeners, what I'm trying to get them to get here is that it's slow Mm-hmm. relative to what you could run for a marathon or a half marathon or a 10K or a 5K. Mm-hmm. And you're able to have a controlled heart rate at a pace that's quote-unquote slow for you. I don't like the word slow, but it's a lesser degree of fast for you. Whereas, you know, I'll have athletes that I coach that go and run a quote-unquote easy run in a sort of base building period essentially that you're talking about where they're running marathon pace the whole time 
and their heart rate's too high and mm-hmm. they're not getting the benefit that they need from the work as a result. Yeah. Yeah. They're not micro stressing at that point. And you kind of need to start out you know, or you need to micro stress and keep growing. And I think maximum row function is a great way to do that because you don't destroy yourself if you actually stay within that. And then you can see the improvements pretty easily because if you say you start, um, you start start using that program and then four weeks later you're running 20 seconds per mile faster. I mean, that's pretty clear evidence that you've gotten better. Um, and it is, you know, it is something where like, I think sometimes people get a little worried because they're like, well, you know, I'm not doing like, I'm not doing any like specific speed work or I'm not doing short intervals or something like that. And it is pretty fascinating, like how much you can get out of that. Like I, I think when I get really fit, at that system, uh, what it kind of does do is it kind of, it makes you a little bit of a jack of all trades, maybe master of none, (laughs) um, where like you can kind of reach outside that for some of the shorter races and do, do decent. I mean, I did a, I did a half marathon built or as part of my build up to tunnel Hill this last fall. And I, the buildup I did right leading into that half marathon was a real heavy maximum role good function. Um, and part of it's because like I was saying earlier with when I'm peaking for a hundred miler, I get to, I identify that as a really good workout or a really good system to hit hard as you're leading into the race. Um, so I was doing a ton of that for like maybe four or six weeks before this half marathon and ended up running just a shade over 70 minutes, which is about five twenty pace. Um, so you can reach below it. Uh, and I think you just, you build, you build yourself into being like a really, really strong runner. Um, and then it just gives you like this really great foundation to build almost anything off of. Like if I built that foundation, I could slide into 5k training, um, and do those specific workouts for that and, and, and be in a really good position just to get a few, you know, some good workouts in and then be able to race, or I could, you know, show up at a hundred miler um, and do quite well off of that fitness as well. So it's, it's kind of a, the way I would describe it is it's a really, really good launching pad for pretty much whatever endurance event you're going to do. Yeah. Okay. So Zach, you are an exceptional runner, right? You seem to be a very knowledgeable human and coach. Um, but where you are really making waves, or at least where I feel like a lot of attention is being drawn is to, your nutrition and how you fuel and how you've kind of turned yourself into this laboratory and this trial and error of figuring out how to become a, I don't even want to describe what I think your diet is because I want to ask you first, what (laughs) in a nutshell, or is there a way to just say what it is you do for nutrition? Yeah. Um, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. Um, well, it, well, like if you had to put a label on it, let's start I know, with that. We have to label things, don't we? Yeah. It's, it gets tough because like, I feel like it, it's, it's kind of funny cause like religion or I'm sorry, nutrition is kind of a modern day religion now where like, um, it gets really easy. I think for folks who have had a ton of this success, say like on a ketogenic diet to want to tell everyone about it. And I don't blame them for that because if you had like some sort of like, um, 
plateau or roadblock in your life that was preventing you from getting to like an ideal weight, like have high energy, you know, you know, good mood or whatever. And then you found like this nutritional strategy that for whatever reason gave you those things, you're going to want to tell everyone about it. So along with that, you know, people are going to always get met with, uh, with, uh, the devil's advocate or the counter to what they did. Uh, and they're going to try to defend it. So, you know, those folks will oftentimes be met with, well, you know, your, your keto diet worked great for what you were doing, but you know, we don't see any elite athletes using it. And then they'll be quick to say, well, what about so-and-so, or what about Zach? He, you know, has this record and he follows a keto diet or a high fat diet. Um, and then, you know, that person counters with, oh, I see he had some carbohydrate during his race. Therefore, he's not a high fat diet <laughs> athlete. You're always um, being watched. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it, it, it really needs to be explained like in its entirety for people to really wrap their head around it. And it's, I guess if you're going to, if you want to label it, um, it's, it's a periodized high fat diet. So no matter where I am during the year, I'm always going to be eating more fat than I am carbohydrates. Um, but the number or the, the, the variance of that is going to change throughout the year. So like you could, the, the way I like to describe it is if you took my entire year, 365 days, and you just plucked a random week out of there, you might pick a week where I, I'm eating less than 5% carbohydrate. Uh, or you could pick a week out of the year where I'm getting upwards to 20, maybe even on a couple of days, 30% carbohydrate. So if you average that all out through the course of the year, I'm probably right around approximately 10% carbohydrate when you add in all the, you know, days where I'm really low in the days where I'm high for me, which is still pretty low for most endurance nutrition protocols. Um, you know, it's like, when you look at it that way, I think it's hard to argue that I'm not a high fat diet proponent or athlete. Um, so I think that that's the way I found to explain it. Like in, in a way that people can kind of wrap their heads around, so they can kind of get an idea of like that. It's not necessarily like every day is exactly this. Uh, and part of that's just because my lifestyle isn't every day is exactly this. So I'm a big proponent in matching your nutrition with your lifestyle. Uh, so if you're someone who, you know, goes to the gym three days a week for maybe 30 to 45 minutes, uh, you know, that's a different lifestyle than someone who goes and does 15 to 20 hours worth of endurance works, you know, strength work and that sort of thing. And, you know, I have weeks out of the year where maybe I'm just going to the gym three days a week for 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, and then I have days out of the year where I might train up to 20 hours. So I try to kind of accommodate those variances in lifestyle with some variances in nutrition. So for me, it's been like, I'm, I'm looking at it as a, uh, uh, kind of a dual fuel tank scenario where like I've got this essentially endless fuel tank, which is body fat. And that's a, something that I think sometimes people get tripped up on. They think, okay. Uh, I'm too skinny to do a high fat diet. Be, you know, like I don't quote unquote have any body fat, which is just not true in any case, really. Um, you mean you take some of the most elite endurance athletes on the planet and they have enough body fat, even though it doesn't look like it to where that tank is significantly larger than their glycogen stores, which is the small fuel tank. 
So I'm looking at it like that, where, um, you know, what fuel substrate do I want to have uh, the most readily available to me uh, for an ultra marathon? And for me, that's fat. Um, that's what I found works. Uh, that doesn't mean that I need to never touch a carbohydrate again for the rest of my life, because I think it's from a performance standpoint. And in most cases, it, it's kind of not wise to eliminate altogether a potential fuel option. Um, and I think ultimately the easy way to kind of say it is I, I look at carbohydrates kind of like I would something like caffeine, where the right amount is a performance advantage. Too much is there, there's a margin of diminishing returns somewhere along the line. And I think I found that for me. Uh, and it just means when I'm in peak training, I'm going to let them get up a little higher. And then I'm going to take like a deload week or, you know, an easy couple of days. I'm going to drop them, drop it back down because those are days where I just don't need to replenish glycogen at as, as fast of a rate as I would maybe when I'm doing two a days with some mobility and gym work or something like that. And you, I've heard you talk about how you got to this place and that you had some energy issues, feet swelling, sleep issues, and then that pushed you with exploration into exploring some changes in diet that ultimately helped you address some of those things. What was that process like for you? Because I know some people listening are like, hmm, this is interesting. Maybe I want to try it. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to find the right approach for you? And then how would you recommend somebody if they wanted to dabble or experiment with this? How should they try it themselves? Yeah. You know, I was really lucky, I think, because when I decided to kind of explore this as a potent, as a potential option, I had uh, been, been listening to a lot of podcasts and talking to, you know, a number of different people who had some experience with it that I kind of had an idea of what some of the pitfalls were and what I was getting myself into. So I think maybe this is less of a problem now, but it certainly was when I first started was that, you know, someone would start it and spend three or four days doing it and be like, I feel miserable. This clearly isn't working. And then just right revert back. Um, you know, it's your, what you're doing essentially, if you followed like a standard American diet or a low fat diet, and then you switch to a high fat diet is you're asking your body to entirely switch its fuel, its primary fuel. Um, that's a stress. So like if you already have a lot of stress <laughs> from other things, whether that be physical, emotional, whatever, um, it's going to, it's going to surface as a problem. Uh, and it's going to take some time for your body to adjust to it. So the way I look at it is if you think of stress as like, kind of just this, if you like, everyone kind of has this bucket and they can, you they can stress themselves within the capacity of that bucket to hold. Um, and, you know, stressing is, can be a good thing if you do it at a small enough amount where your body gets stronger and your body adapts over time, but you can also overstress and then things kind of start to fall apart. So a lot of times what I see people doing is they don't eliminate any other stresses from their life and then they just pile a new stress on. So if it's someone who's already kind of at the peak fill of that bucket and they pile another one on, it's going to go terribly for them. Uh, so for me, I kind of knew that was the case. 
So I didn't start it until I had finished my last race of the season and I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, take a little bit of recovery time and then uh, build up my training uh, at a very low intensity. Um, so my body had the opportunity to kind of make that metabolic switch without inducing too much extra stress. And, you know, it was, it was the, the way to kind of look at it too, is like, I, I mean, I spent about a month where there were some days where I'd go up for like an easy jog and based on the perceived effort, I'd be running a minute to a minute and a half or so slower than I would have been. Um, and I just kind of knew that that was probably going to be the reality. So I didn't like freak out about it and, and bail out. Um, so after about a month, which is a pretty good timeline, I think for most people, I've seen some people adapt much quicker. I've seen some people take longer. Uh, I started feeling good on a lot of those like, um, more aerobic based activities. Uh, and in this, that's kind of where like the exploration or the N equals one stuff began. Uh, cause then for me, it was like, okay, if this worked okay, when I was just doing like some easy running, what happens when I start introducing more specific stuff, some more workouts. And, uh, as I kind of built up, I noticed what a lot of people do. I think when you start piling on, uh, a variety of different intensities, uh, I kind of noticed if I kept my, my carbohydrates super low, like ketogenic clinical ketogenic, which is typically defined at around 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate, uh, that I would feel a little flat if I tried to go faster than just kind of like, you know, base pace or something like that. So you, you kind of lose your last gear more or less. Um, so then I, you know, just started experimenting a little bit with, uh, bringing back carbohydrates, but not necessarily just going like whole hog high carb again. So it was like, kind of just like taking it one step at a time. And I introduced a little bit of carbohydrate, then try to work out. And I, over time and going through the system a few times, I, I kind of identified like the different ranges that I like to be at based on the work and the intensity that I'm doing. Um, so basically this whole time, you know, I'm paying attention to things like, you know, where my workout paces were historically, at what effort and what heart rate and things like that so that I kind of know and can be honest with myself as to whether it's affecting me positively or negatively from a performance standpoint. Um, and, and that's kind of how I would suggest anyone would do it. Uh, if, if possible, I mean, wait till your off season, uh, remove a huge stress in your life, which is the training stimulus. Uh, and then, if, and then replace that with, with the dietary switch. And then once you start getting back into it, um, you can, you know, hopefully you've adapted enough to like start to be able to introduce some of the training stimulus on top of that. Um, but then be honest with yourself in terms of like bringing back carbohydrates. I mean, I do consults with people and I would say half the people I consult with is a scenario like this or similar to this, where they're, they're training for an endurance event, 10 plus hours a week. And they, you know, they did all their, the research on ketogenic diets, low carb diets and stuff. And they thought it was potentially beneficial for them. They started it, they loved it, but they can't quite figure out that last gear piece of the equation that I was talking about. And they'll sign up for a console with me thinking that I'm going to tell them that they need to reduce their carbs even more because they're somehow not going low enough when they're already you know, down to like 30 grams a day or something like that. And then we just talk about bringing that up and why that maybe would be, why they would need that. And, you know, it's, it's, I spend just as much time probably telling high fat people to, 
strategically use a little bit of carbohydrate for performance if that's their goal. Uh, as much as I do taking someone who is high carb and teaching them, you know, how they should cut out carbs or something like that, which I find really interesting because you'd think it'd be the other way around in most cases, but it, it, it's, it's usually not. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where I think you have to be honest with yourself. You have to uh, give it a fair shake and then, um, but ultimately if performance is your goal, you know, you should be improving, not digressing. So um, it's probably a path for everyone to consider uh, doing. Um, it's probably a path that some people maybe aren't gonna wanna do or continue to do and, and that's fine as well. Two things you said there that I wanna highlight and summarize. One, you did a lot of research before you jumped in, which I think is critical for anybody taking this step. And two, you did it during the off season when you didn't have other stresses, other pressures. Can't tell you how many times as a coach I have somebody join my program, start a new training program, a new training system protocol, and tell me that at the same time they're also trying a high fat mm. diet or keto diet. <laughs> and you know, like, no, I'm sorry, you can't you can't do that. That's two new things one. at once. You're gonna kill yourself. Yeah. But what what question followed there is do you think this is more relevant for those doing ultras? versus those who might be doing 10k half marathon marathon or is it something that could be relevant for all you know all distances mm -hmm. yeah i think uh i think in theory it's relevant i think where the where the differentiation is going to be is you're going to take everything into context and the context difference is going to be like the types of workouts you're doing and when you're doing them so uh if, if, if you're preparing for like a 5k or a 10k, uh, you're probably going to have to be more liberal with the carbohydrates. If you are like a one percenter, like if you're someone who is at like the top of the sport or at, you know, a really high level and trying to maximize performance. Um, I don't see any reason to think that like it wouldn't be wise to play around with carbohydrates in that scenario. Um, and it's so like, it, you know, I don't know necessarily exactly how different it would be for me if I were just trying to peak year round for five K's and 10 K's. Cause I haven't spent that much time. I'll jump into those things from time to time. Um, but it's never like a period where I'm building up just for that. So I can't speak from personal experience as to what I would manipulate differently for sure. Um, what I suspect is that I would probably be uh, utilizing carbohydrates a little more heavily during some of those peak training phases, and I would be definitely resetting in the off season and on down deload de stuff because the reality still is with any endurance training plan, you're still spending way more time at an at a you know an aerobic or base level of training. Like you know, like th that's one of the other things that a lot of times will pop up with this stuff is people are very good at identifying the event the person is, is preparing for and trying to kind of uh, project that specific experience onto every day, all day. And like, if you have someone who's a 5k runner, that race is a fairly unique experience. It's not something they're doing all day, every day. Um, so like you can structure things differently when the time is right. 
so does that mean like, do I, do I think like a 5k runner could just replicate the exact same thing I'm doing for hundred miles and find exactly the same amount of success? Uh, I would be surprised, I guess I would say, but I wouldn't be surprised if they could do it with just a few minor tweaks. I think you can still follow a high fat approach with that. Um, especially in the right context. Uh, I mean, people are just different too. Like, uh, when you think about it, you know, when you, when we think of like Olympians and stuff too, it's like, we've essentially identified as an endurance community at the Olympic level, what the nutrition protocol should be. So these it's, you're not seeing scenarios. I think where the athletes are questioning that they're more or less just doing what they're told. So we get these people who end up going to the Olympics, winning medals. Um, so the question to be asked then is, did they get there because for whatever reason, they responded very, very well to the nutritional approach put in front of them? Uh, or did they like, did they do, do well because it's the only way to do it and they had everything else line up as well? Uh, I'm more interested in the people who fall off, <laughs> like the, the people who, you know, were at like a promising level, say in high school and maybe college or early college. And then for whatever reason, ended up falling out of the sport. Like, are those people that could have maybe continued to excel if they had some other options available to them? So that's kind of where I guess I'm at with, with like some of these shorter distance endurance events is like, um, I get, I get the fear of wanting to like stick to something that's been proven. Um, but I also want to be open-minded in the sense that like, there's, there's probably more than one way to go about this. And there's probably some people that could benefit from it in some shape or form. So to, to dismiss it altogether, I think is a, is a mistake. So are you saying there's a long list of burned out potential Olympians that <laughs> could have gotten there if they had just been on a high fat diet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? Right. But, uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think where, where I will be, I guess a little closer to an absolute, I try to avoid absolutes at all costs, but like, I think when you do get to like, here's what I think I'll say is like, I would be shocked. I would be absolutely shocked to see someone win say a gold medal at the 5k on a strict clinical ketogenic diet. Um, because at that point you're, they're going lower carb than I am. Um, I mean, if it's, if it's implemented as a lifestyle year round type of thing, uh, what I wouldn't be shocked by is to see someone win a gold medal for the five kilometer that implements a strict ketogenic diet during certain parts of the year. If that maybe, maybe that's the simple way to say it. <laughs> then you need to head to East Africa and talk to those guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so, that's part of it too, is like, um, the Ugali, the Ugali has got to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing too, is like my, my approach to nutrition has always been like, um, that, that where we run into problems, I think is when we get like these ideas that there is one way to do it. And that's the only way, because that's when it becomes an like an ideology. And then people stop being honest with themselves and stop exploring and start just trying to confirm their own bias. So like, if you look at it more open-mindedly in the sense that like, 
okay, let's look at this and start to, to pick some things out of it that may have some application and start there and then in, keep learning and then find out kind of how that stuff's going. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's people doing that. So, uh, it'll be interesting to kind of see how things progress as, as, you know, sports nutrition continues to evolve and, you know, different sports, try different things. And, uh, you know, we find more out about some of this stuff. I, I appreciate your nuanced approach because it seemed like, especially in nutrition, everybody is black or white when at least those that are trying to make a lot of money on it. But really it's, it's a lot of gray, I think, Mm -hmm. especially when you add in the fact that everybody responds differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so last question, essentially I'm training for a 50 miler, my first ultra in August and I'm a road marathoner. I've done, I think 17 of them now. I signed up for the Squamish 50 miler. And it'll be my first, as I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I dabble in the trail here and there. I've done some 30 K trail races, but that's the longest I've covered on the trail for a race itself. What tips would you have for the ultra newbie like me? Who's going to go do a 50 miler in eight months? Yeah. You, well, you're not effing around if you sign up for squamish. <laughs> no, I know. There's a lot of reasons. I thought you were going to say like Chicago lakefront or something flat. Like. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons I chose that one, but we don't have time to get into it. <laughs> yeah. So I think like in, in that situation, what I would be looking at is kind of, I guess, maybe the same thing, but from two slightly different angles. Um, one is like kind of what I said before, specificity is king. So doing some stuff that is as close to that race course um, profile as possible is going to be really good just because the mechanical difference between running flat versus running steep and up and down are different enough where you do want to try to stimulate yourself to that. Um, and then like the, the other side to that is if you're historically really used to running flatter stuff, um, you've exhausted a little more that strength or the ability to grow that, that skill set. So the area where you have the most potential growth rate at is going to be on like the steeper stuff. Um, so like you could probably see some pretty big initial gains by getting in a lot of climbing and descending, just because if you haven't done a lot of that in the past, uh, you're starting from kind of a lower place. So there's just more potential growth there. Um, so I would check that out. I also take a look at how technical Squamish is. I'm pretty sure it's quite technical. So that's like a whole nother ball of wax, I guess, more or less. It's, it's not, it's not too bad that way. It isn't? Okay. It's mostly packed dirt, some roots. That's part of the reason why I chose it because I'm not super good at like technical rocky stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge for me is going to be the vertical gain and and descending because you do gain like you know 3,500 feet in three miles mm-hmm. yeah. and come come down you know 2,500 feet in you know three miles. Uh-huh. And so that kind of terrain, I'm definitely unprepared for. And it's going to give me the biggest challenge for sure, especially given that I don't think I've noticed a 3,500 foot climb in Austin, Mallory, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, last time I was looking at the top to, Tobo map. But so, so that would be a question. If I, if I want to train for that kind of vertical gain and, and descending, 
in a city that's relatively fat, at least relative to those mm-hmm. those gains that we're talking about. What do I do? Yeah, uh, the hard the, the hard part won't be the climbing. Uh, I mean, I would just like jack the treadmill up or um, hit up a stairmaster or something like that, uh, and just get some of that in. Um, the downhill is where I think you probably need to pay the most attention to it just because like the eccentric contraction of the downhill running is usually what does most people in, in some of those races, everyone always, uh, I shouldn't say everyone, but like, you know, a lot of times I think people think, oh, my legs are shot because of all that climbing. It's like, no, your legs are shot because of all that descending. <laughs> um, and you'll notice yeah. it the day after for sure. Uh, so if you can get like, even if it's just like maybe two or three opportunities to go somewhere that's got some downhill, um, and just like pound some of those downhills to get your quads just used to that eccentric contraction a little more. Um, I think that's going to probably be the biggest bang for your buck. If Chris doesn't believe in treadmills, can I just jump on his back? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's actually the same thing. I'm trying to think of no, who you... said it first, but I think there's some efficacy to it too, is like, um, climbing just, just the mechanics of it are like kind of like some shorter speed work can maybe help with that a little too, just because, uh, um, if, if you're running, if you're running fast, like quarter mile type workout fast, you're more likely to probably be lifting your legs up and going through that mechanical motion, similar to like, you know, a long, like a high stride, like power hike or something like that. Um, so that might be worth putting into if you're just dead set against hopping on the treadmill or the Stairmasters, do some shorter intervals or something like that. So tomorrow I'm doing downhill intervals and switching to a high fat diet. <laughs> just do it all at once. All in, yeah, it, you know, it is, it is funny because you mentioned like sometimes people are like, oh, I'm training for this. I'm going to start the high fat diet. It's like, I mean, I, I think it's, it, it, it it's one of those things where like it, you, you can't help but smile because you love to see that level of ambition. And I think it's just like people get, they get, they get so excited and all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm going to do everything. It's like the whole new year's resolution thing, right? Like I'm going to fix this, yeah. this. And then before you know it, they're like, you know, it's the end of January and they've already given up on the new year's resolution. So some things are best done in, in like uh, smaller steps, I guess, more or less. So <laughs> and there's a, there's a fine line between smiling and laughing there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. One more question for Mallory and then we'll you. wrap it up. Okay. So you're fortunate enough to be married to another ultra runner, right? An amazing one at that. So I assume she understands your 20 plus hour training weeks, but because she's like right there with you. Right. But when it comes to diet, does she share the same kind of philosophy and what is it? Are you guys a house divided or is that any kind of <laughs> issue when cooking meals? Is it like, I mean, I'm a, we're currently a house divided. Jason is, is full throttle into fat adaption and I'm kind of dragging my heels. And then we have a kid. So it's like uh-huh. we use every pot in the kitchen because we have to cook three different meals. Like what is your dinner? What, what does dinner in your household look like with Nicole? Yeah. Uh, you know, Nicole's, she's kind of like sneaky fat adapted, I guess. Like I don't, she never really, she likes popcorn. Yeah. So she likes popcorn. I guess that's, I guess we're really the biggest deviation between Nicole, what Nicole tends to gravitate towards, which where I tend to gravitate towards is like, um, what kind of carbohydrates maybe like, 
you know, so there's parts of the year where I'm eating very little. And then, you know, those are kind of even easier uh, to plan for because Nicole usually builds like a meal around like some non-starchy vegetable and then like a uh, cut of meat of some sort. Historically, she's like salmon, but she's done more red meat. That's probably an influence from me, I guess. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, we'll just, we'll cook up a bunch of vegetables, um, non-starchy or something like that. If I'm not eating a whole lot of carbs at the time and then some fatty meats and we're usually both cool with that. And then everything else is kind of supplementary. So then it's just broadening the grocery list. Like Nicole, like sourdough bread quite a bit. So it's just me making sure I remember to pick that up or I guess sooner than later, learn how to make it myself. <laughs> um, right. And then like for me, like, right. So that sounds easy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not a hard challenge. Um, you know, I, for the carbs, I like when I'm bringing carbs back, I historically have done a lot of like sweet potatoes, raw honey, melons, berries, that sort of thing. Um, Nicole's not a big fan of most of that. So then it's, that's really the biggest difference is, uh, picking up a bigger diverse or a wider diversity of things that I know she likes versus what I like. And then, um, the rest kind of just takes care of itself. She's not vegan. I live in a house. <laughs> I, I live in a household with a, a mostly vegan person and I'm the opposite in the more meat dominant for sure. We make it work. You figure it out. That's what, that's what marriage is about. Well, and it isn't really, you know, I think that's, I think sometimes a roadblock for people too, is like, they somehow forget that like we have access to almost every type of food in a very like short range. Like uh, what is it? What is it? They they consider a food desert someplace. that's not within two miles of a grocery store. And it's like, that's a food desert. It's like, how many grocery stores do we have? (laughs) So like, you know, I think like whether you're picking up groceries or whether you're going out to a restaurant, it's pretty easy to either manipulate a menu or, you know, pick up like the ingredients that you want and that, you know, your partner wants and, and kind of make it, make it work. It's just getting it kind of in the routine. And the compromise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Zach, this has been really, really informative so thank you for joining us we really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me what's on. next uh for you what's next uh as a race for you so people can look out are you doing western states again no i'm not uh nicole actually got into western states so i've committed to crewing and pacing there so i'll be out there just not racing um you know i haven't really hammered out a concrete race plan yet for 2019 uh i do know that I'm super intrigued by the 24 hour puzzle. So I'm looking to maybe solve that one at some point during the year. Uh, I also kind of want to do another flat hundred miler. Uh, so that might be the first move is kind of finding a good spot to do one of those kind of in the late winter, early spring time frame. Cool. Well, we'll tell the audience to check out your website, zachbitter.com or follow Zach on Instagram at Zach bitter. That's Zach with an H or on Twitter, Z bitter. At Z-Bitter. So there you go. Everybody will be looking to see which 24-hour race and which 100-miler you're going after in 2019. Thanks again, Zach. We thanks, really Zach. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So there you go, Zach Bitter, everyone. Thanks again to him for joining us. Also, of course, this is the last week to register for Season 3 of the Podcast Training Group. If you'd like to jump in, We've got a great mix of veterans from the podcast group as well as new folks. 
in that group. So it'd be great to have you join us again. We've got options for speed track for half marathon and marathon training for races in the April and May timeframe. Well, that is it for episode 108 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.